my name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, February 1st, 2012. I am taking a break from the elephant room. Believe me when I tell you I want this elephant room thing to die. (laughs) I just want it to go away. It's like so last week. Yeah, unfortunately, I think uh, James McDonald is purposely trying to keep it controversial and keep it going. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and uh, we are doing the work of the Bereans, you know, basically saying, all right, listen, you know, Mr. Man of God, we we heard what you said. Tell you what, we're going to go and we're going to take what you've said and we're going to uh, compare it to God's word in context to see if you're rightly handling God's word so that we can tell whether or not you're a sheep, uh, shepherd or a wolf, if whether you're uh, uh, truly representing God and his angels or if you're masquerading as an angel of light, but actually an, an agent of the bad guy. And so, yeah, that's what we do here. And so it's it, this is an, it basically... A think-along program, if you like, where uh, you know I walk you through the basics of biblical discernment, Christian apologetics, uh, some major theological topics, and uh, sound biblical theology. And uh, the idea is, is we try to have a little bit of fun along the way, but at the same time, we, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that we're cutting corners and putting out a schlocky product, if you know what I mean. Anyway, what we uh, what we're going to do today? Today is our light edition of Fighting for the Faith. Once a week, uh, just because of the uh, the schedule that I keep, it's uh, it's difficult for me to produce five programs. 
programs that uh, have that type of content, uh, especially since every single edition of Fighting for the Faith is actually themed. There's particular things I'm, I'm trying to work into themes for each edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to do our light edition. We're going to be continuing with the lectures uh, by Dr. Michael Horton on the Great Commission. Uh, these This has to do with uh, a series of lectures uh, pertaining to his book, The Gospel Commission, Recovering God's Strategy for Making Disciples. And so we're going to be listening to lectures number three and four, Trace and Quattro, if you would. Uh, and uh, so with that, let's dive right into the lectures. Here is Dr. Horton. Our Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us this morning already, that you, the comfort that you have given us, that... Uh, even one greater than Elijah, indeed greater than Elisha, has come. One to whom Elijah and Elisha pointed, who, the, upon whom the Spirit is present, was present, uh, remains present in full measure. And we thank you for sending that Spirit into our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, and be witnesses to Christ, even to the ends of the earth. We pray that you would bless our reflection on the Great Commission this morning, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, we are, uh, at least that's when, it, when, it, when, I'm, when I show up, uh, we're going through the Great Commission. Um, we are looking at the rationale for the Great Commission first, and then we're going to go through the various strategies that Jesus included, fleshing out under the various phrases of the Great Commission, uh, what we learn from other passages about uh, the specifics of that strategic plan. And last week, well, I shouldn't say last week, the last uh, time I was here, I think two weeks ago, uh, we, we were talking about uh, the uh, authority that Jesus has been given that justifies the imperative go into all the world. You know, we've said, we say this a lot around here uh, and in reform circles generally. You can't have the imperative without the indicative. People think we're against imperatives. And this is just one more imperative we don't like because we're reformed. You know, it's all indicatives, the doctrine. It's all about telling us what, what God has done in history to save us. And there are no implications. Uh, let's just, let's just uh, forget about it uh, God likes to forgive. I like to sin. That's a perfect relationship. That's what a lot of people think, and it's just not even close to being true. Those who have been saved are filled with gratitude and are looking for clear uh, uh, revelation of what God is pleased by. And the Scriptures tell us what pleases God. Nothing can be clearer in terms of an imperative that pleases God more than the Great Commission. But you can't start with the imperative. You have to start with the indicative. Otherwise, there's no reason for him to have said, go, therefore. It's the therefore that links the imperative to the indicative. Just as Paul, very often in his letters, will say, here's who you are in Christ. Therefore, do this. Don't do that. It's, he's grounding it in who you are in Christ, grounding it in your identity. And here the Great Commission is grounded in His achievement. He's not saying, go build my kingdom. He's not saying, here's a great dream. You want to dream this with me? I hear that a lot these days. Kind of 
that Jesus came into the world to give us a dream and to say, would you dream along with me? Uh, no, that's not the that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is I had a dream. My father and I and the Holy Spirit had a dream. And guess what? We fulfilled it. We achieved it. We already accomplished our dream. Now get out there <laughs> and go tell everybody. Go announce it. That's a fundamentally different approach than one that begins with just the imperative. Go into all the world, making disciples, preaching the gospel, and then you'll build my kingdom. That's a, that's a completely different uh, approach. And no wonder uh, people get burned out with that kind of a strategy. What gave him authority? What gave him authority was his resurrection from the dead. And that's what I, what I want to focus on here uh, briefly this morning is his exaltation. And uh, there is a lot of overlap with the sermon, a lot of the same themes here, because I want to look at this in the light of Israel's overarching motif of, of uh, exodus and conquest. We, we tend to think, in answer to that question, what gave him authority when he says... I have all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore into all the world. The all authority given to him is not given to him just because he's God. That might be our, our first answer uh, might be, and it's understandable, uh, what gave him authority? Well, he's God. And of course it's true, but insufficient because the, the scriptures labor to make the point that in his earthly ministry, Jesus is always subordinating his will to that of the Father. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he's given me to save, I will not lose one of them, but raise them up at the last day. Paul says to the Philippians that he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name in heaven and on earth. And that's the, that's the reason that Paul gives for his exaltation. He has the name above every name, not just because he's God, but because though he was God, he humbled himself, became obedient even unto death, even death on the cross, fulfilled the law for us, bore our curse, and was raised the third day for our justification. In other words, not only because He's God does He have all authority in heaven and on earth, but as the righteous man, He has all authority in heaven and on earth. As our elder brother, as the one who pulled it off, as the, the good Adam, as the faithful Israel, the faithful and loyal son who did everything that the Father him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Finally, <laughs> listen to him. And so he's the victorious man. He's the covenant Lord who commands and he's the covenant servant who fulfills in our place. The Exodus conquest theme is the overarching historical motif in the Old Testament. It's... it's uh, 
It's sort of the coordinates, the, the north pole, or the, the, uh, it's, it's north and south on the compass in uh, biblical history. And we sang Psalm 68, so I don't have to read the whole thing. Let me just hit some of the highlights. Psalm 68 is a great song summarizing that whole history of Exodus and conquest. It pictures the people of God being led through the Red Sea on dry land and then being brought as an army into the wilderness and then through the wilderness driving out the enemies of God before them in the land of Canaan which God swore to give to Abraham and his descendants. And it's the God of armies, the God of hosts, who is driving out the enemies from before him. This is a, po- a poem, a hymn of Israel summarizing the book of Joshua, summarizing the conquest under Joshua. Moses didn't lead the conquest. Moses led the Exodus as the mediator of the, the children of Israel, but he never entered the promised land. He died with that unfaithful generation in the wilderness, looking down from the rocks at Canaan's boundaries across the Jordan. But Joshua led them in. Joshua is the one who uh, was the transitional figure from Exodus to conquest. The Lord is a warrior. Pharaoh's chariots he has hurled into the sea. Exodus 15.3. That's from the song of Moses. There's a lot of typology between Moses and uh, Jesus. Uh, Both were barely... Spared, narrowly escaped from the massacre of the firstborn males of Israel. Uh, Both were endowed by the Spirit with extraordinary gifts of wisdom and understanding. Both were mediators of their own covenant. (laughs) Moses was the mediator of the covenant at Mount Sinai. And Jesus, the mediator of the covenant of grace. But Jesus is greater, says the writer to the Hebrews. He is a son, whereas Moses was a servant. He is the builder of the house, not the house. He isn't a recipient of the gospel. He is the gospel. There's a fundamental qualitative difference between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Moses. And, and then Jesus talks about the words of Moses recorded in the Bible, the words that Moses records as spoken by God as if he said them. This is the word of the Lord. I, I, I meant over here somewhere. Oh, by the way, when I was saying that in Exodus, what I meant, you know, one of the, the again, audacious comments of, of Jesus that we often pass over that the religious leaders didn't miss. Uh, what's he talking about? He's talking like he, he wrote this. Uh, who, does, who does he think he is? And he did write it. But he says, you've heard it said... But I say, and he's not contradicting the Old Testament, he's not saying that it's wrong, but he's saying there's a regime change now. Moses mediated a covenant that lasted for a while. You broke it, but God was faithful. 
And now I'm here. I'm full, I have fulfilled that covenant. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And then you will be saved in the covenant of grace. And so Jesus stands on his mount, just as Moses stood on his mount, Mount Sinai. Jesus stands on his mount and says, you have heard it said, but I say. Regime change. I'm, uh, 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 and he doesn't say, you've heard it said, but here is what the Lord is saying now through so-and-so. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I say. And he doesn't even say, you've heard it said, but God says. He says, you've heard it said, but I say. Again, taking the position of God himself. Moses didn't say, I say, thou shalt not kill. Moses said, it is written. Here is, the, here, here is what we, I've been given. Here are the tablets and here's how they read. And Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say. And uh, Jesus is, is qualitatively different from Moses. Jesus recapitulates Israel's 40-year trial in his 40 days in the wilderness. He is the Joshua who brings us into the promised land. It doesn't take someone after Jesus to lead us from exodus to conquest. Uh, Jesus himself uh, brings us into the promised land. In fact, Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Jesus is just a, an anglicized version of Joshua. So, conquest... Uh, not only Exodus bringing us through the Red Sea, but the conquest, uh, driving the nations out before him and establishing his kingdom on the earth. That's the theme that Israel had in mind. And that's what they had in mind even after the exile. What happens when Messiah comes, this is how everybody was thinking in Second Temple Judaism, which is the Judaism of Jesus' day. Most, at least the Pharisees, were thinking... Here's what's going to happen. Messiah will come. He will drive out the nations. We'll have a new conquest, a new exodus that will be even greater than the original exodus. And a new conquest. The nations will be driven out of the land once and for all. Uh, Messiah will cleanse the temple. Messiah will purify all of the observances of Israel and there will be nothing that defiles in the land, so that's why we can't have sinners and uh, people uh, who have physical maladies because they thought that was a sign of, of uh, corruption. We can't have anything that is weak or anything that is not perfect physically or spiritually or morally in the temple precincts. That's what it means to purify the temple of the Lord. And when we do that, when we purify the temple and we're ready for him, Messiah will come and he will drive out the Romans. So that's what they're expecting. And then there will be the resurrection of the just. That, that kingdom will culminate in the resurrection of the just. Now this is what Jesus' own disciples were thinking. This is the script that they had been taught uh, on their mother's knee. They knew this story, and that is exactly what they were expecting. Psalm 68, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him as smoke is driven away. So you shall drive them away as wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, 
They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with, with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the desert. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when You went out before Your people, when You marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the One of Sinai, before God, the One of Israel. And then later in the psalm, finally, Israel arrives with the Ark of the Covenant in the sanctuary, and he's no longer the God of Sinai. He's the God of Zion. And so there is a transition from Sinai, that mountain, to Zion, the ultimate mountain. Uh, and Sinai in Jewish uh, theology, uh, Jewish theologians today, they say Sinai represents the, the utter conditionality and viability and volatility of the relationship with God because it depends on human obedience, Israel's obedience. And Zion always represents that somewhere above all the vicissitudes of history and whatever human beings do, there remains a sovereign and inviolable will of God for his people. Jesus uh, is the author of the Exodus and Conquest uh, theme in the New Testament. He's the character around whom this Exodus and Conquest coalesce. And if Psalm 68 is the, is the text that sort of summarizes this Exodus Conquest theme in the Old Testament, then uh, the best summary of uh, this theme in the New Testament comes from Ephesians 6, which actually... Uh, quotes Psalm 68. Paul says, beginning at, at, at verse uh, 8, Therefore it says, what says Psalm 68? When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended, see this language of, Exodus and conquest, descending into the waters, ascending in conquest. He who descended is the one who also, sorry, he, yeah, he's, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's bad translation. Uh, to complete the saints through the work of ministry, I, I would argue is a better translation, uh, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The same motif of exodus and conquest that, that forms 
the, the two hinges of Israel's history reappears in the New Testament. I'll come back to uh, Ephesians 4 here where the ascension is the conquest for the Apostle Paul and the ascension is, is the Spirit's uh, the ascension is the prelude to Pentecost only when Christ has ascended to the throne of all power and authority, given the name above every name in heaven and on earth, uh, and sends the Spirit, is it possible for the gifts to be poured out on all of his people? It's like a pinata. It's the birthday of the world here. Uh, he goes up to heaven, uh, takes, uh, take, takes uh, a stick and just whacks that thing into pieces with one whack. And all the candy falls out to us. And we go, little kids, picking up all the candy. That's what we're doing right now is picking up all the candy. As all of these gifts come flowing down uh, God, uh, from heaven because Christ is ascended. That's what he's doing right now. He's just throwing candy. You know, passing out gifts. And in this particular passage, the gifts are pastors and teachers who, who, equip, who complete the body, giving each part what it needs to do its job. Not doing their job for them, but giving them the gifts that they need in order to do their job so that, finally, the body keeps growing and expanding. And there are additions on this house all the time. Uh, when Jesus was actually uh, uh, going about his work, the disciples kept wondering, when is Jesus going to start this thing? This is ridiculous. This is how, what time is it now? Uh, that's why John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus, asking him, uh, are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? I, I like the frankness of it all. You know, we, I had a lot of hope for you, but uh, here's my address. 852 Prison Way. And I think, I'm not sure, but I think it's Wednesday that I'm supposed to have my head removed from my body. So, just be nice to know if all this time we pinned our hopes on the, on the wrong Messiah. Because there had been a lot of wrong messiahs. Maybe he was one. You know, uh, I haven't seen much. Well, what do you mean? He's uh, you know, one of Jesus' followers could have said, you don't remember Jairus' daughter? Raised right there? You, you don't remember? What, well, what, well, what about Lazarus? Of course, that happened later. But what, what do you say about, you know, person born blind and now he can see? And all the, Jesus performed many miracles. And John the Baptist would most likely have said, it's always, you know, uh, he, he's not, he can't say he never would have said. So uh, it's speculation, but I think in the light of what his expectations were, he might have said, big deal. There have been a lot of miracle workers in Israel's history. We weren't expecting a miracle worker. We were expecting the Messiah. A, a guy healed of blindness over here, somebody who couldn't walk and now he can walk over here, praise the Lord. But that is not the Messianic kingdom. Where is the resurrection of the dead? Where is judgment day? Where is the, 
the driving out of the, of the oppressors. Where is the kingdom? We don't see the kingdom now. You're just going around forgiving people's sins and having dinner with people. Prostitutes and sinners and, and all sorts of people and saying nasty things to the religious leaders. What is actually happening now that the prophets said would happen? They, what, see, what they didn't get was that, the, that Christ's kingdom comes in two phases. The same kingdom, one kingdom, but it comes in grace and forgiveness now, opening up a space for repentance and faith. And then he comes in judgment at the end of the age. And so that's why the disciples, when they're gathered uh, at, at Christ's ascension, ask him that question about the coming of the kingdom. It's not, their, it's not like we should censure them for asking the question. After all, Luke tells us that before Christ's ascension, in those 40 days of preparation, when he took them to the Berlitz Seminary course, uh, in 40 days taught them how all of the scriptures teach about concerning him uh, teach concerning him uh, we read Luke tells us uh, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God so the theme was the kingdom of God and you could imagine them saying another conquest another exodus Another conquest. Okay, now we get the Exodus part. We didn't. But when Cleopas and the others, you know, it started there when you, you met up with them on the Emmaus Road and you talked to them about how the resurrection had to be fulfilled. And we also remember you said something to Peter when he got mad um, about how the Son of Man has to be crucified and then three days later be raised again. We never really got all that until after it, it happened. Now it makes sense. We get the exodus. But now the conquest. And we're standing here and you've got your bags packed. You're the most confusing Messiah we've ever had. I, you know, I, you're, no one does this. Could you imagine Joshua saying... Uh, okay, well, we're, we're, uh, we, we, we made it through the Red Sea uh, under Moses, and uh, now uh, you know, we've, we've accomplished everything that we, that we need to accomplish, and uh, I'm, I'm going to Cairo. You know, no, he's going to lead the people into the promised land and drive them out. How can you have a conquest if Joshua isn't leading it? And so they ask him their last theological question before he ascends. Lord, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> you can't blame them. You know, there's, there's, there's... Okay, we've been waiting for the conquest bit. And now you're leaving. When does that part happen? And... Uh, Jesus says, well, as far as the re uh, you know, the, uh, restoring the kingdom to Israel, it's not for you to know. Only the Father knows the times. It's not been given to you to know. But I'll tell you this. 
Go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for Pentecost. In other words, that's your clue. Your clue is the conquest is going to happen when you go to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit comes. Now, they should have already known that because Jesus taught this in John 14 through 16, the upper room discourse, where Jesus said, it's good that I go. Because if I don't go, the Comforter will not come. And Comforter is such a horrible translation of Perikletos. It's attorney. Uh, You know, what the prophets were, covenant attorney, the Holy Spirit comes to judge and to justify. That's how Jesus describes his mission. He will convict the world of sin. Well, that's what a lawyer does. He will be the prosecuting attorney and defense attorney. The other parakletos, not the other Messiah, but the other attorney. What Jesus will do objectively in history to forgive sins, the Holy Spirit will do subjectively in our hearts to convince us of our guilt towards God and of His righteous uh, judgment toward us. So what you really need is not a, a Redeemer dying on a cross again. All of that's done. The exodus is over. We've passed from death to life. Our forerunner has already has already passed through the waters of death and come out the other, the other side victorious. We don't, we don't fear death the way that we, that we would have before his resurrection from the dead. We don't need another act of redemption. What we do need is for the Holy Spirit to come. That's what we needed at that point, at that stage. And, and Jesus knew that. He says, look, I'm going to go where you need me most. And when that happens, you're going to get what you need now most down here. Not a redeemer. But an empowerer. We do different things. The Father, the Son, and I. Uh, the Father, the Spirit, and I. We do, di- do different things, Jesus is saying. If I go to the Father, we will send the Holy Spirit and He will prosecute the war. In other words, there is a conquest, but not the way you're thinking. This is not driving the Gentiles out of the precincts of Palestine. This is turning the other cheek and allowing them to persecute you, but still proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then the end will come. I'm opening up space here. This is good news. Now, if John the Baptist and his disciples and Jesus' own disciples had had their way, we wouldn't be here this morning. If Jesus had collapsed all of the events of the last days into his earthly ministry there would have been no, no gospel sent out to the Gentiles. There wouldn't have been from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. We, wouldn't, we would have been condemned right then and there. Judgment would have fallen. It would have been judgment day and the sword would have, would have touched each of us. But the good news is that 
Jesus has opened up a fissure in history. He has pulled, pulled history apart at the seams so that this passing evil age isn't allowed to pass away completely yet because when it does, it's everlasting death and life. No becoming. No, well, what about if this changes? What if that changes? It's everlasting death and everlasting life. We don't want that to happen yet. It's good that God preserves this present evil age as long as he chooses to because that means all of the Gentiles and all of the Jews will be brought in together and made part of one family and then the end will come and then the conquest will make all of Israel's holy wars pale by comparison. But this is not the age of conquest by military victory. This is the age of praying for our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, and preaching the gospel. So this is, this is the storyline behind Jesus' words, all authority has been given to me. This is the plot behind those words. I am Joshua. But this campaign is not what you expect. And it's it, it just as, as the exodus involved a true and greater and deeper and far more significant exodus than Israel passing through a little finger of water over there in the Middle East, so too this is a far greater conquest than you could ever imagine because from this little mustard seed, a great tree of grace is going to grow and its limbs will spread out over the whole earth until it gives fruit for the healing of the nations. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. We are sometimes so frustrated with the pace of Christ's the growth of Christ's kingdom. We look around and we say, oh, just look at the church and look at the state things are in and da 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 And we sometimes forget the miracle. There is a tree. We are living in that period of church history where that is truer now than it ever was when Jesus spoke it. There actually is a tree. There actually is a body of Christ in every part of the world today. That is in, ex in itself a wonderful testimony to the truth of what Christ promised here to his people. And then a cloud took him out of sight. Uh, this is not like, uh, well, you know, he sort of was taken out of sight, but... Uh, it's, it's, it's more like, you know, um, Grandma is with us at Thanksgiving. Jesus is with us whenever we think about him. You know, he's still kind of with us. No, they took, a cloud took him out of sight, even while they were standing there. And, and the two angels said, why, why, are you, why are you still looking up at, why are you... Try to hold on to him and keep him down here. 
the same two angels, by the way, who came uh, to the women and said, why stand ye here gazing at the tomb? He is not here. He has risen. You know, why don't you guys keep up? The angels can't get it. Why? You guys are slow. Wow, down here. Um, and uh, that's what he's doing. The Holy Spirit is the other parakletos that we needed. We have what we need, who we need, the Holy Spirit. We, we have Jesus Christ ruling and reigning for our salvation at the right hand of God. And we have the Holy Spirit pulling off the ground campaign here below. What could be better? We have everything that we need. We don't need a vicar of Christ on earth. Because Christ is still in charge from the throne of all power and authority. We don't need a substitute. And not even the Holy Spirit takes Jesus' place. The Holy Spirit mediates Jesus' authority on earth. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes Christ's reign in heaven actually happen on earth. So that when we pray... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're thinking of that tag team that is the Son and the Holy Spirit. Part of the problem for us is we're Greeks. We identify the, the Spirit with heavenly things. And, the, and, and Jesus, we identify maybe with, with earthly things because he, he was physical, he was incarnate and so forth. But the Holy Spirit has been hovering over physical things making them fruitful for a long time. The earth was one. He overshadowed or hovered over the sea, creating dry land. The Holy Spirit uh, led the people through the Red Sea. He's been turning water into dry land for the people to cross for a long time. And then Mary. Uh, the explanation to Mary about the incarnation would be... Uh, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. So he would hover over the waters of the new creation. And what will be born of you will be of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then he came at Pentecost. Is it not amazing that the same Holy Spirit I've just been describing indwells you? Right now, that he intercedes for you, that he turns our stupid prayers into good prayers, that he, that he upholds us, the same one who upheld Jesus in his temptations in the wilderness and so forth, that same Holy Spirit upholds us. And that same Holy Spirit empowers us now to go out and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus is gone in the flesh in other words, but he has not gone in his power and authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm going to the place where you need me most. Stop thinking in terms of heaven and earth. I'm going to the most important throne in the whole cosmos. And there, I'm going to sit at the controls. <laughs> and the Father and I are sending the Holy Spirit to actually create the reality of which I speak. Bring my commands to pass. When I say let there be light, he's going to hover over death 
and hearts will start beating. And that's why Jesus could say in that upper room discourse to his disciples, and greater works than these will believers do because I am going to the Father. Greater works than he ever accomplished on earth. Namely, what could be more miraculous than people who are dead in trespasses and sins coming to a saving knowledge of Christ in China and North America and Iran. And greater works than these will believers do because I am going to the Father. Again, you know, the TV evangelists just stopped there. Greater works will, will ye do. And so, uh, you know, you'll, you'll even be able to heal more people in one day than, than Jesus did. No. Greater works. Greater works will you be able to do because raising those spiritually dead to life is a greater work even than physical resurrection of people like Lazarus who would then die and await with us the resurrection of the body on the last day. Now, greater works will you do because, not because of you, but because I am going to the Father. You're not going to have any power, you're not going to have any authority down here unless I actually, ironically, leave and go to the place of all authority and power in the whole cosmos, the right hand of the Father. And then whatever you ask in my name, there again, he's talking about the Great Commission, not the great car. Uh, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so the, the, the Father sends the Son. The Son returns to the Father. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And then on Pentecost, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit send us from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth as the mobile, spirit-filled temple of the last days built without hands. What a privilege it is for us to be able to go out and add living stones to that temple that the Holy Spirit is erecting in the middle of history at the end of times. Any questions or comments or allegations? Yeah, another another example of that, of course, is the golden calf. What do they say when they that prompts them to build the golden calf? They say to Aaron, uh, "As for this Moses, what's become of him? We don't know what's happened to him. He's been up there for forty days. Uh, it's time for some action down here. The natives are getting restless, and so the, the golden calf will become the substitute for Moses." Um, this will be our mediator. And uh, you know, the, the danger is that when Christ, when Christ ascended to the Father, that we have the same situation where the church, the church for 2,000 years 
very often is tempted to look for a physical mediator present on earth now who can substitute for the loss of having Jesus in the flesh. But there is no substitute for Jesus in the flesh. Jesus is not here and will not be here until he sets foot on the earth again. But he is present by his Holy Spirit. And that's why we can feed on him in the Lord's Supper. Why we can uh, uh, receive him in the Word. Because the Holy Spirit takes what belongs to Christ and, and gives it to us. But it's, it's because of the Holy Spirit. It's not because Jesus somehow makes himself uh, present or we somehow make him present through our tangible, visible uh, sense experience. Uh, as Paul says, you don't go into the heavens to bring him down or go into the depths to bring him up from the dead. He is as near as the word which we preach. Okay, I just noticed we're over time, so we'll, uh, we'll pick up there next week. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back with the next lecture in this series. So stay tuned. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We're back. Uh, warning. Um, we're not called to change the world or make a difference in the world. We're called to make disciples of all nations. Yeah, there's a big difference between those two statements, by the way, or the concepts. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to keep doing what we're doing and bring this program to you into the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. There are perks, and when those perks come available, you receive an email thanking you for uh, your crew membership. And uh, sometimes those uh, perks include free ebooks and things like that. So as they come available, we make them available to you as our way of saying thank you for being a crew member. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 okay here is lecture number four in uh, these uh, great commission lectures by uh, dr michael horton here's dr horton let's open in a word of prayer our gracious heavenly father we thank you that you have included us in your worldwide family that in this time between the two comings of our Lord, you have created space for repentance and faith, and not only created space for it, but sent your Spirit uh, into our hearts to draw us to Christ and to embrace Him and to cry out through Him, Abba, Father. And so we pray that you would, by that same Spirit, uh, cause us to understand more fully and deeply the immeasurable greatness of your Son and His kingdom in this hour that we have, in Jesus' name, amen. I, or a half hour that we have. Um, last week, as, as you might recall, uh, I was talking about the importance of starting in the Great Commission, the series we're going through here is the Great Commission, starting with the indicative announcement, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So the imperative of missions grows out of the fact that God already is the missionary. God already has accomplished his purpose uh, in Jesus Christ and now is uh, simply dividing the spoils. Now what, what's happening is uh, in the light of the conquest that Jesus has achieved and accomplished by the Spirit leading the ground campaign, uh, we are going into all the world and basically stealing Satan's goods. That might sound like some of the TV evangelists. You know, we're, we're going to steal the devil's property. But yeah, we are. The devil's property are those who are in bondage to sin and death. And uh, we are given the great privilege of going and unlocking those prison doors and letting them go free. Uh, and so in, we talked last week about the 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 motif that runs throughout the Old Testament of exodus and conquest, the the liberation of Israel through the Red Sea, and then the conquest of Canaan that followed. And that forms really the the two stories, the two major stories uh, that form the bookends of Israel's history. And Israel is always brought back to that story, those two themes of exodus and conquest, And the Gospels also, some more than others, the Gospels also follow that, self-consciously follow that theme of exodus and conquest, applying it to Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. 
was not exactly what the what Jesus' contemporaries were looking for, and we're going to see that even more here as we talk about the kingdom that Jesus inserts in the middle of history uh, when he uh, came 2,000 years ago. Islam, as we know, is not just a religion. It's a political, socioeconomic, uh, legal, military complex. <laughs> it's a it's, it's a, a vast culture. It's a civilization. It's not just a religion. And it comes with its law. There is no gospel. It comes with its law and backs up that law with the use of the literal sword. Now, a lot of this Islam actually learned from uh, early Christianity, unfortunately. Uh, in fact, two centuries before Muhammad, Eusebius... Uh, the, the early church father, who was uh, a dutiful servant of Constantine the Great, celebrated his patron as Christ's earthly image when he writes, Our divinely favored emperor, receiving, as it were, a transcript of the divine sovereignty, directs, in imitation of God himself, the administration of this world's affairs. With divine mandate, therefore, the emperor subdues and chastens the open adversaries of the truth in accordance with the ordinary usages of war. And that was two centuries before Muhammad. Uh, and, of course, those who were on the other side of that sword were the infidels. In fact, uh, on a cold uh, November day in, in 1095, Pope Urban II roused Christians to uh, gather together and assemble and hear what he had to say because there was too much bloodshed within Christendom. And he said to the people gathered below as he, as he uh, 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 gave orders for a new crusade uh, against uh, Islam, if you must have blood, bathe in the blood of the infidels. So we're kind of hearing language back at us now. <laughs> <laughs> that that is actually in books that, that people can find that we used to say. And whether it is, frankly, uh, Zionism in Judaism, or militant Islam, or forms of Christianity that still look for the glory days of Christendom, all of these views of the kingdom were really present at the time of Jesus, and he really was constantly having to tell them that this is not the way the kingdom comes. In both the medieval Christian and Muslim versions, the basic assumption is the same as that which Jesus' disciples uh, had assumed in his day, namely that the kingdom of God is a, re a resurrection of the Sinai theocracy. That's what the kingdom of God is. Yes, of course, it will involve something new. It will involve the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the righteous, when Messiah comes and drives out the Romans and all Gentiles from the land. At last, this will be the Garden of Eden again. And the dead will be raised. The just, the righteous, will be raised to life everlasting. This was the 
common assumption of most of the devout Jews, at least in Jesus' day. Uh, they had a right to quote Second Chronicles 7 on their uh, high holy days. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray, I will uh, heal their land and uh, so forth. They had a right to invoke that that uh, uh, verse, that conditional blessing. Uh, if indeed they did repent, if they did turn, if they did mend their ways, the Sinai covenant uh, would again be enforced. That's what they were expecting. Now, of course, common nations have no right to that verse. This was a verse that only Israel could pray. Uh, it's not for us at Fourth of July. Uh, but Israel soon learned that not even she could pray it in this time, in this phase of redemptive history, because there's the regime change. And that's what Jesus uh, announced, and that's what uh, was difficult for people, because the kingdom that Jesus announced was not what they were expecting. First of all, with John the Baptist, people were not expecting uh, uh, the kind of kingdom even that John the Baptist was announcing. There had been lots of claimants to the Messiah. Lots of people had come along and said, well, I'm the Messiah, and gathered a number of followers, a period where you could really get that going because people were very excited about the hopes of overthrowing the Romans, but they knew that only the Messianic king could do that. And so you had claimants, people who would say, I'm, I'm the Messiah. And they would gather an army, and uh, that army would be squashed, and then the Roman army would uh, come in and uh, uh, beat down everybody and put the skulls <laughs> uh, and the crosses up and let everybody know who's boss in Palestine. But John the Baptist came with some, something different. Uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Imagine there's... Uh, there are there any Gentiles here? What do you, what do you talk? Uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, all right. But what do you, I mean, talk about, talk about the, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Talk about Messiah and the, the driving the Romans out and reestablishing the Sinai theocracy and the purity of Israel and nothing unclean entering the sanctuary and so forth. Talk about that. But instead, we read that the prostitutes we're going into this kingdom, but not the religious. Boldly, the Baptists rebuked the religious leaders for their smug reliance on their pedigree. We're children of Abraham. Don't talk to us like that. And John the Baptist responded, God's able to make stone, make children of Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown in the fire. <laughs> Have a nice day. Uh, this is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. And they're saying, well, this is our kingdom. This is for us. I, axe is laid at the root. We're all for that language when it comes to the Romans. But what are you talking about? And he says, father will be divided against son and mother against daughter. Basically, what he's saying is, this judgment begins in the house of the Lord, just as the prophet said. 
This is not going to divide between Jews and Gentiles. This is going to divide between Jews and Jews. Jesus is going to become the new head of the family. Jesus is the only one who is going to be the, 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 the uh, rallying point for Israel. So you're, you're a true Israelite, true child of Israel. If you are in Jesus Christ, he is redrawing the boundaries of Israel. What Israel is is now determined by its relationship, one's relationship to him. He is Israel, the true and faithful son. But it's not only not what the, 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 uh, Jesus' Jewish contemporaries were looking for, that John understood. It, it, was, it was difficult enough even for John to understand what Jesus was up to. Now, it's, it, it, first of all, uh, in order, before, before I uh, uh, go into John's uh, comments here, it's important to see that whenever you, whenever you go to Old Testament prophecy, it has a telescoping effect. Kim Riddlebarger gives a great analogy where he says it's like going to the mountains. Uh, you know, here you, 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 you uh, see these, it looks like just one range off in the distance. And then you get up closer to it and you go up over one set of mountains and then there's another set behind it. And so when you actually get there, you see that it's not just all one range of mountains on the horizon. There are other mountains behind it. And that's the way it is with biblical prophecy. So you read the book of Isaiah, for example, and you say, this is Cyrus, king of Persia, who uh, actually did come a couple hundred years, uh, or not a couple hundred years later, came very shortly after the prophecies were delivered, and uh, eventually allowed some of the uh, uh, Israelites to go back and build uh, the temple in Jerusalem, and sent gold and all kinds of stuff back, uh, for the rebuilding of the city. And so a lot of the prophecies have been referred to Cyrus, and in, indeed he kind of fits some of those, but it's sort of like Cinderella. The glass slipper has to, you know, it, yeah, kind of, but it only fits one person ultimately and finally, and that's Jesus. Behind that range of mountains, once you get up to Cyrus, you realize he fits a lot of the prophecies, but not even any of the prophecies Perfectly. And there's another range behind it. And that other range, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly fits those prophecies. The same thing happens in the kingdom, in the new covenant. The kingdom comes, but uh, the, uh, 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 Jesus' disciples, including John, were expecting it as one event. The resurrection of the dead, the last judgment, and the, the uh, driving out of the Romans, and the uh, 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 restoration of the, of the theocracy, all of this would happen simultaneously in one event. And that's why, as John is in prison awaiting his execution... He sends disciples to Jesus and his disciples with this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John is the kind of guy who, who just cut to the chase. 
<laughs> and he didn't really have a lot of time. Uh, so he's wanting news back quickly. Have I just wasted my vocation on you? Was I the forerunner of, 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 of a failure? Because I've heard about like a couple people who were blind who see now. And I've heard about uh, Jairus' daughter being raised and a couple of, of extraordinary things that happened, you know, things that happened under Elijah. That's great. That's terrific. But Messiah and his kingdom is qualitatively different from that. Can you give me any news that might make me in- encouraged that you're the Messiah? Are you the Messiah or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you see and hear. Not just what I say, but just go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. <laughs> I hope that's okay for John. I, I, uh, I hope he's not offended by that. I hope that doesn't, you know, uh, confuse him. And this is really, even John the Baptist, and he had all sorts of reasons. When you go and you look at those prophecies, it's really not until they're fulfilled that you look back and see how they were telescoped like this. You can go to Amos 9 that talks about Israel being restored and everything, and you can just read that like the morning newspaper and say, like many dispensationalists do today, that that refers to literal Israel resurrection 1948 in the land of Palestine. That was the same mistake that Jesus' Jewish contemporaries were making. We're taught to go back to passages like that with Christ at the center, and then we see things that we never saw before, as when James goes back to Amos 9 in Acts and interprets that as being fulfilled not in 1948 with a literal literal restoration of a geopolitical theocracy, but he says, in what we all now see and hear, namely the Gentiles coming to faith and grabbing onto the hem of the garment of a Jew, saying, take us with you into this kingdom. Then Jesus turned to the crowd and he spoke concerning John the Baptist. No prophet has arisen greater than John, he said. No prophet, not Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, not because of his greatness, but because of what he got to prophesy. The proximity the proximity of that prophet to the fulfillment. No prophet has arisen greater than John, and yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Isn't that amazing? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. In other words, the, the idea of the kingdom has been a, a violent idea that has, that has caused physical, temporal violence, like the ones, the examples that I was mentioning 
from Pope Urban and, Constant, and uh, Eusebius. And the violent take it by force. Jesus is saying that's not the kingdom. And so right up to the end, right up to the end, at the ascension, the last theological question they ask Jesus before he ascends is, Lord, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But if you go back to the, to the, to the whole history, which we won't do in any depth here, but you go back to the whole history, read from Genesis to, uh, to the Gospels, the theme of the kingdom, what you have are these periodic, these periodic periods in which heaven literally comes down to earth. You have it at, uh, in the Garden of Eden. You have it, and then, and then the cherubim are posted at the Tree of Life, guarding it saying no, no re-entry, which, by the way, is good news, because if, if we had been allowed to eat from the tree of life, at that point we would have been confirmed in, in everlasting damnation. No hope of salvation. So it was good that he posted cherubim there and said, no, we're going to stop this whole kingdom thing so you're not going to all burn right now. I'm going to take my kingdom, which is holy, and will destroy you, back up into heaven and create a space for repentance and faith. Then there are other times when, so they're living east of Eden in this period. So then there are other times uh, where that kingdom comes down. Noah's Ark was a small-scale replica of the Holy of Holies in heaven. What is the... What is the temple? What is the sanctuary? It's the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God dwelling in the midst of his people without them being consumed. Eden, Ark, then Israel, and yet, in fact, it's interesting that, uh, that when Israel sinned, and Hosea 6-7 says, like Adam, Israel broke the covenant, uh, when, when Israel sinned, guards were posted. You know, the Levites are like the cherubim. Uh, guards were posted at the eastern gate, not allowing entrance. And it was out of the eastern gate that uh, the Holy Spirit departed from the temple, just as he had departed from the eastern gate of Eden. So the Holy, where the Holy Spirit takes up residence, there is the kingdom of God. And that's what happens at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down again, descends again, and creates paradise on earth. And we look at that and we say, you've got to be joking. Where? Well, the church. Wait, once again, where? (laughs) I mean, we've got a good church, but paradise on earth? And see, this is the stumbling block through all of the ages, as we heard uh, this morning from, from Peter. People say, where is the promise of his coming? Things seem to be going on as they always have. And yet, Peter reminds us that God isn't being slow. God is being patient. There's a difference between being slow and being patient. Not willing for any to be lost, but that all should come to repentance. 
He is opening up. He has opened up a space between his two comings. We should be so glad that John the Baptist got it wrong. If he hadn't got it, gotten it wrong, if it, if it had happened the way John the Baptist thought it would, then as I said last week, none of us would be here today. But because he opened up that space, there is a reprieve and a remnant from all the nations now is, is coming in. There was a great prayer in the Kaddish, second only to the Shema. You know, the Shema Israel, the Lord your, uh, uh, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, next to the Shema itself, the Kaddish, probably written in the Babylonian exile, had this prayer that every Jew prayed during and after the exile. And, and it was prayed very much uh, uh, every Sabbath in synagogue when Jesus, uh, in Jesus' day. Glorified and sanctified be his great name in the world he has created according to his own good pleasure. May he establish his royal dominion and start his deliverance of his people. And may he bring his Messiah and redeem his people in the time of your life and in your days and in the time of the life of the whole house of Israel today with haste and in short time. And thou shalt say, Amen. That's what Jesus probably had in mind, that prayer, when he uh, instituted the Lord's Prayer. Very similar, thy kingdom come on, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus was actually bringing this kingdom. He wasn't talking about it, he was inaugurating it. There are two really Gentile misunderstandings of the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated here at one extreme is a typically Greek idea of the kingdom as a purely spiritual, ephemeral reality that doesn't ever really touch ground on the earth. Uh, it, 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 uh, it doesn't really rearrange the furniture on a sinking ship. Uh, this idea of, of the kingdom of God is, and the kingdom of heaven is, has nothing to do with earth. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven, because it doesn't have anything to do with earth. Uh, the kingdom of heaven means that you go to heaven when you die, if you believe in Jesus. Now, of course, we can be very delighted, very you know, comforted by the truth that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Nevertheless, that's not the kingdom. That's not the kingdom, certainly, that the Jews were expecting. It's not the kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming either. Jesus was proclaiming a very concrete, specific kingdom that, as we heard this morning, will involve judgment and everlasting peace. This world he created. This world is fallen. This world is redeemed. This world will be restored in all of its fullness. Not just souls, but bodies. Not just you and me, but Romans 8 says the whole creation. But there's another very Gentile distortion, and that is to look at the kingdom of God as a this-worldly kingdom. Not only does it happen in this world and its history, it is of this world and its history. It's something that, that we can produce. It's not, as the writer to the Hebrews says, a kingdom that we are receiving that cannot be shaken, but rather a kingdom that we're building which can be shaken. And this is the enlightenment idea of the Jesus' moral kingdom that he told us to establish. 
And so little by little, more and more, through the education of the human race, we're becoming a lot better at, at, at getting this love your neighbor thing down, which is really so true. Over the last uh, few hundred years, it has been a remarkable success, I think. Uh, and uh, no, it's not that. It's, it is in this world against the first Gentile error, but it is not of this world against the second Gentile error. Rather, as Isaiah 64 says, it is a rending of the heavens. That's, what, that's, what, that's the only thing that Israel can pray for. According to her own works, she has no right to expect anything but the same judgment that God has pronounced on the nations. There is no hope on the basis of the Sinai covenant. And so Israel looks up in Isaiah 64.1 and says, Oh, that the Lord would rend the heavens! Not give us a boost. Not help us out here. You know, we're kind of running low on steam. Our moral energy is sort of uh, depleted. Give us a little bit more of that spiritual coffee uh, to, to, to get us going again. No, what, the only thing that can happen is tear open the curtain separating heaven and earth and come down. That's the only thing that can happen. We cannot ascend to you. You have to come down. Please come down and save us. And that's the incarnation. And when Jesus came, he didn't talk about uh, what it will be like when the kingdom comes. He spoke as if he actually were the king. And that his presence was actually the inauguration of that kingdom. Some of the great passages uh, along those lines uh, come from uh, uh, the, a very short period uh, in Jesus' ministry uh, toward the end, late, late in his ministry. I'm looking for the, uh, the passages here. He Jesus says, uh, yeah, in, in uh, Luke's gospel, chapters 10 and 11, a lot happens in Luke uh, 10 and 11. Uh, remember, John the Baptist is saying the kingdom of heaven is near, is at hand. And Jesus announces that it has actually arrived. The 70 Jesus sent out on their mission come back and report to Jesus uh, that they, they, you know, they're breathless. They say, you, you won't believe what happened. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, yes, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. (laughs) Now that doesn't happen every day. That is what you call a significant redemptive historical event. Lucifer, the deceiver of the nation. The, the one who has imprisoned all of humanity under sin and death, has fallen from heaven. Which is good because we, that means from that moment on, the prosecutor of the brethren was disbarred from the courtroom. He can no longer assault the saints before God. Whatever chaos he brings on earth now, 
It can shorten our lifespan. It can bring havoc to people. It can, it can bring destruction. Uh, it can bring martyrdom to the church. But it cannot diminish the number of the elect by one. The prosecutor has been thrown out of heaven. And that's the significance of that report. Jesus said, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come among, um, upon you. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a power. It's a saving, it's a saving power. That saving power has come upon you. Now, of course, he was casting out demons by his finger, by the finger of God. And therefore, the kingdom has come. Above all, sinners and outcasts were being forgiven directly by Jesus, bypassing the temple completely. That was blasphemous, unless he was God and the kingdom had come. That kingdom that the prophets prophesied, which is greater than the earthly temple, it will be the temple made without hands. Greater than all of the blood of goats and calves, it will be the blood of the suffering servant himself who will give his life a ransom for many. The exodus is past, but now is the era of conquest through the witness of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And only when Jesus returns will that conquest be consummated as the kingdoms of this age are made finally and forever the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And so we'll talk about uh, Jesus' uh, teaching on uh, the specific nature of that kingdom uh, next week. I don't, I, I'm... I'm uh, uh, maybe two questions, and then we'll Alinda. Sure, sure. And then we'll probably just uh, uh, break. I hear the, the natives getting restless. Um, the, uh, yeah, that's a great question, Olinda. First of all, I think sometimes when we say the church, the church is the true Israel, what a lot of people hear, especially Jews, is that the church, which is a 2,000-year-old institution headquartered in Rome, replaced... Israel, the ethnic people, uh, not just in Palestine, but wherever they're spread out in the world, but who are of ethnic Jewish descent. Now, if, if that's what people are hearing, I think we have to be very careful about, uh, about that. What we're saying is the church is Israel because the church has always been Israel. <laughs> it's not that the church is 2,000 years old. The church goes all the way back to Adam and Eve when God promised a Savior. And in chapter 4, when Seth and his line are distinguished by the fact that they then men began to call on the name of the Lord. 
That's when a church started. And so, at least when Reformed Christians are talking about the church, we're talking about Israel. When we're talking about the Old Testament, we're talking about Israel being the church. Not just the Gentile church being the true Israel, but our being grafted into Israel. And I think that's the point that Paul makes, especially in Romans 9 through 11, that it's, it's not that Israel has been set aside. It's that branches of, the, the, of Israel's uh, menorah have been broken off to graft in wild branches that don't belong there. And it's making Jews jealous until God uh, brings in the fullness of the Gentile elect and then brings in a massive remnant of, uh, of Jews. I mean, I believe he's saying that all Israel shall be saved, that it's, he means... Uh, massive outpouring of the Spirit on the Jewish people. But, but the, the, the true Israel of God never has been, that's Paul's argument in Romans 9-11, through 11, has never been just if you're circumcised and you happen to be a descendant, physical descendant of Abraham. Uh, it's always uh, children of the promise who are counted as the seed of the Lord. All right, we'll pick up there next week. Amen. Good stuff. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.